Welcome to the show. I'm always grateful that people will take a little bit of time out of their busy schedule to listen to the Trumpet Dynamics show. It's a labor of love for me, and I hope that you enjoy listening to these episodes half as much as I enjoy putting them together. I'm really excited to release this one with Lynn Nicholson. Now, I have just seen Lynn here and there on Facebook just butchering Things like the Stars and Stripes Forever, uh, performed by the Marine Band. <laughs> it's quite the contrast to see the Marine Band in their uh, the, in their uniforms and all just Marine Band-ish doing the Stars and Stripes Forever. And then you have Lynn overdubbing with uh, taking it up two octaves. And uh, it, it's, it's just hilarious. And we actually talked a little bit about this in the interview about the difference between being irreverent and flat out disrespectful. And the way that I interpret something like the, the Marine Band, which is a wonderful performance of a, of a great American song doing, you know, what he does to it. I don't personally see it as disrespectful. It's a bit irreverent, but it's, it's not flippant is what I'm saying. There's a lot of skill involved. And if you understand it, there's a lot to, really just appreciate with it. Uh, so we talked about that and we also talked a lot about what really makes music, what defines music, how uh, the, the, the music today has lost some of the personal touch that you that was prevalent in music in the 70s, 60s, 70s, 80s when Lynn was still performing. We talked about why he uh, quit the, the full-time trumpet gig and did other things, and now why he picked it back up again to a limited extent, not to uh, the degree that he did in, in his heyday. All, all in all, it was a wonderful conversation, and I was just really grateful that he took some time to just share his thoughts on the call. So I'm going to get out of the way and let you enjoy this wonderful conversation with Mr. Lynn Nicholson. Here we go. So out of the blue, Dave Manette sent me a mouthpiece um, about 12 years after I had quit. And as a courtesy, I went upstairs and dusted off my trusty old Getsany Turner trumpet um, and tried to play it. And it was an MF2 at the time, which was more of a conventional cup, um, not the V cup that Maynard would use to. So anyway, I played it for a little while. And after a couple, three, four days, I kind of got enthused about trumpet again for some reason. So I, um, I had some unanswered questions in my mind and those questions related to how did Maynard play this tiny little V cup because I'd tried it before during my career and, and, uh, no luck at all. Um, I mean, I could play it for five minutes, but past that, no luck at all. So, um, that's what started me looking more seriously at, uh, the mechanism that he used, that Maynard used, um, that I had seen in person uh, when he was in his prime. Um, and so from that point on, a labor of love, I guess you could call it, trying to figure out um, how he played that small piece. So 
I got one of these little groove and high mouthpieces that Dan McMillian was selling at the time. And it was a copy of his Colicchio piece that he used on Kenton's Bend. Other things too. Probably his most famous piece. It took about five minutes, I guess, to figure out how to play in the upper register on the thing. And it surprised me because, you know, I had had a lot of time off. All I'd done was play a little bit on that Monet piece. Wow. What a surprise. I mean, it was extraordinary upper register and, but I had no low register at all. Okay. So you're bringing up some terms that I haven't heard before. So like a, a groove and high mouthpiece. That was the name of the mouthpiece. It was, um, Dan McMillian had his machinist. That was the first copy of the Colicchio. Roger Ingram now has a, a more accurate copy. Um, that he calls the vintage Maynard. And Maynard played what mouthpiece? A Colicchio? Maynard played the Colicchio for a number of years. Okay. Kind of a long story. We probably don't need to get into it. But um, Maynard had handed me the Colicchio piece on my last day in 1974 with the band. And he said, this is the mouthpiece I played on Kenton's band. And then he added, he said, bled out of the bell and spit valves every night. I looked right. at him like, really? And I didn't say anything. He said, well, I, I was just too embarrassed to miss a note in those days. Um, okay. So he gave me the piece and of course I couldn't play it. So I just kind of kept it here in storage. And when I went, this was 1974, I think it was December 20th, if I'm not mistaken, at the NAMM show in Chicago. So I kept it. And when I went to visit him in Ojai, when I lived in LA in 1975, we were playing trumpet mouthpieces and stuff because I just bought a, a large bore Mart committee, his opinion of it. So anyway, in those days he was accessible and we two like two little kids playing with horns and mouthpieces. I said, here, well, let me hear you play this piece. And so he, he played that alongside the chameleon piece, which is the one um, that I had put the 19 hole in uh, the previous year at his request, by the way. Anyway, the difference in sound was dramatic. The one with the 19 hole with essentially the same V cup as the Colicchio sounded way bigger. Anyway, that's a whole other story. We can talk about that later if we have time. So I, I said, well, you should keep the, he sounded great on it. It was a lot smaller sound, but he sounded great. He had all kinds of range and everything. And I said, you should keep this. He said, no, no, no. He said, I'm done with that. And that's how Maynard was. He was a forward looking person. He didn't look back hardly at all. I finally convinced him to keep it. So he kept it and he goes, he looked me right in the eye and he goes, he says, just remember, he says, this is your mouthpiece. And you have to understand that everything Maynard says is kind of like a Zen. It's kind of a Zen thing. It's not a, it's not like literally this particular mouthpiece is yours. I, he was telling me I need to play a small V cup. Okay. Got it. Didn't, didn't find that out till many years later. Decades later. Well, those, those, Zen, those Zen guys don't, they're not always clear in their instructions, are they? They're very clear, but you got to be on the same page as they are. Yes. Yeah. 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 yeah I, I love it. I mean, I, I'll talk to a Zen person all day long compared to somebody who approaches life scholastically. What do you mean scholastically? Uh, w with book knowledge. And, you know, regurgitate this person says this, this person says that. No. Zen people, they just nail it. And it's, and it's on a deeper level. So anyway, yeah. I love that. Letter of the law versus the spirit of the law type of mentality. And to be fair, there's not many laws in Zen. 
I always dreamed of a, a world where we don't have rules and regulations and everybody functioned according to their moral compass as opposed to peer pressure or what they think they should do or whatever, however you want to look at it. Because um, I think we all have a, a moral compass that runs very deep. Um, and apparently, based on the world today, not a lot of people look at that anymore. But it's there. It's there and it runs deep. So I don't need rules. I don't need a government or a church or anybody else to tell me how to live my life. I already know. I already know. And I'm not bragging. I'm not being arrogant or anything. I just don't need to be told. And I, I look forward someday, probably not in this lifetime, where I can be free and not have to put on the filters I mentioned earlier. But you, but you did need Maynard Ferguson to tell you what mouthpiece to play. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, I, I'm, I'm joking. I'm joking. We kind of, I, I mean, kind of, um, but you have to understand that he is the master of the physical approach to trumpet. The things I saw that year, just unbelievable. We're getting a, a little bit off topic, but I, I like going off topic, but you're talking a little bit about how governments or, or churches, these governing authorities, they, they have their way of dictating how we should live. But that's very different from someone like a Maynard Ferguson, who you respect and you revere, is an authority. You're going, you listen to him because you respect him, because he has proven himself. Exactly. And, and so, so there's just a profound difference between that and some uh, mayor who you didn't even vote for, setting, making some law that, that you, it, it doesn't affect you, uh, other than it puts maybe a little bit of burden on your life to, to comply with it. That's, that's well said. You can cut that out if you want. I w wasn't on some kind of a soapbox or anything. I was just, it, there's the Zen world and then there's the, the other world pretty much. And Zen is a loose term for, uh, I don't know how to approach it, a spiritual approach to life as opposed to a scholastic approach. Yeah. Makes for good radio. It's all good. Man. Now, how did you get started on trumpet? I came home from school one day. I think I was in, I was 10 years old. I forget what grade, probably fourth, maybe fifth. I told my mother I wanted to play trumpet. Well, the band program hadn't started at school yet, so she wasn't sure where I heard about it, but perhaps a teacher mentioned it or something like that. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So they, they got me some private lessons and stuff, and uh, I studied at Largent Accordion Academy with a fellow named Harry Nigro, who was the brother of the sister who owned the place. So anyway... I stayed with him and got started that way. Um, we couldn't, we rented a cornet from them. My folks were, I, I grew up, I was one of these people who grew up, you know, the poor, the poor white child. We couldn't afford much more. So I don't know how much they paid, but it was probably like $5 a month or something. And they, when they saw that I was serious about it, they decided to buy a, a real trumpet instead of the cornet. So they got me um, a King Liberty which I still have for $55 and it was awesome. Um, I was fired as a student at the accordion Academy because I didn't buy their $300 horn, uh -huh. <laughs> which they were trying to sell me, of course. And, uh, I mean, that might as well have been a million dollars to my folk. Right. Right. I, I, I'm sorry. What year is this? If I had to guess, I'd say it's probably 63 or four, maybe totally guessing if I was 10, it would, it could have been 62, something like that. Yeah, so that's how I got started. And um, 
the next year then, um, Webb Cumin was the band director at, at my, um, and we had like a music session. I remember it was in the gymnasium. I think it was a small, just a small little group of people playing and he was a trumpet player. Um, I, I made pretty fast progress apparently. And he had me demonstrate. I remember him, um, uh, asking me to play for the small group from slurs from C to high C and, you know, and B to high B and B flat to high B. And I just did it. And, and I made some kind of emotion, like I was, you know, bragging about her or something. He goes, oh no, no. He says, stay humble. Right. So basically I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, so that's how I got started. And I, I came out of the, out of the, uh, the box, so to speak, I guess with, with a kind of a natural affinity for it. I, the way I look at things spiritually, I probably did it before at some point. I don't know. Maybe in the broke days. It's hard to say. I always had this uh, fascination with high notes, but I didn't really think much about high notes then. I didn't didn't know. I mean, this Web Cuban used to put in this mouthpiece he had. He pulled it out at, at my lessons with him, and he'd he'd like slur up into the stratosphere, and I was like, "Whoa, you know, that's pretty cool." But didn't think much of it. Now, now you can't remember what inspired it, because this is before the the band starts in school. So you, I've never known. I've never known. I, like I said, it's probably a teacher mentioned it. You know, not in a musical sense, but you know, like, oh, listen to the trumpets over here. And I thought, hmm, what's that all about? I'd like to think I knew what a trumpet was when I was ten years old, but maybe I didn't. I don't know. I didn't know who Maynard was until you know almost high school. Yeah, I never heard about Chase or any of those people. I kind of a, a sheltered, um, life, I guess you could say musically. Well, how is it that you, I mean, how did you get familiar with these guys to, and, and it sounds like you took to it pretty well to the point where you're playing with not, not just hearing them, but playing with them in these really high performing bands. Pretty young. <laughs> right. Right. It, was, it probably, I was the one most surprised, um, by the whole affair. I figured out how to play high notes. This story's been circulating, so you probably heard it before. But um, I figured out how to play high notes in marching season uh, with the Maynard Ferguson Protocol approach, which was not called that then because I had no idea um, what happened to me. But the mouthpiece was sticking to my lip in the cold weather. This was in Chicago area. Sticking to my lip in the cold weather and ripping skin off when I pulled it back down. And I said, this is no good Also, in the band room one day. After a, a 6.30 a.m. rehearsal in, in the frosted or snowy field, um, I, I said, this is enough of this. So I, I um, tried playing dry instead. And nothing came out at first, just air balls. And so I, something caused me to unfurl the chops enough so they vibrated. Because I kept trying. This all happened in a space of about 10 minutes, I'd say. I got blowing, 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 and, and, and all of a sudden my, my squeaky little high G, which was really inconsistent, turned into this roaring double C like in 10 minutes. And again, nobody was more surprised by it than me. And I would, this was, I was a junior in high school. I was a math science major. I was going to go to MIT, IIT or the Air Force Academy. And I hadn't even gotten to that selection process yet, but that's all my courses were that honors classes and this, that, and the other thing very scientific mind. Um, and, but at that point I decided I'm gonna play trumpet. Then I had a couple, uh, people who were, um, a year 
maybe a year or two ahead of me. I think this started when I was a sophomore who introduced me to this like crazy, a real, 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 real tape of this crazy trumpet player. And I was like, wow, this, this is incredible the way this person plays. It was Maynard, of course. Anyway, I, I tried to play along with it and stuff and kind of could, you know, I, I kind of couldn't do it. And long story short, um, I played in some local bands in the Chicago area. I lived in Aurora, Illinois, about 40 miles out. So it was a pretty good drive and learned, you know, to play music in big bands and stuff. And at the same time, I was, uh, in the Wabansi community college, Swabber just got back. That band had some notoriety because we had a bunch of ringers in it. <laughs> so we went to Europe, uh, and did a jazz festival and stuff. That's, that's when I first met Bud Brisboy, for example. And, uh, Don Rader was one of the other trumpet players. And I forget who, I, those were the two main ones, but, and then I heard, of course, Bud Brisboy for the first time. I had no idea who he even was, but that he could play an octave higher than I could. And what consistently <laughs> and cleanly and, and I was like, whoa, this is crazy. So we got to talking and stuff and. He really liked my mouthpiece. His was a very small little mouthpiece, narrow, and mine was huge. It was like bigger than a Bach one or something, a 0.745 inner diameter. He looks at my mouthpiece. He, he goes, whoa, he goes, that's a good mouthpiece. He, he used the word good. He really liked it for some reason. And, um, so that's anyway, that's where I met him. But so I continue to play along with, um, these bands. I went to a Stan Kenton clinic. I was always trying to get on Stan Kenton's band. It just never happened. But I went to a clinic anyway. Um, I went to a couple Buddy Rich concerts, uh, Woody Herman, and I uh, went to a Maynard concert finally, and met Sandy Sandberg, who was at Holton, and he had the he was like the PR guy with with trumpet players, um, and Maynard had just come out with his MF horn, so I I had to have this MF horn which. I did get, and in the process, uh, Sandy was at, um, Holton, which was in, right outside Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, which was about 60 miles north of, of, um, Aurora where I lived. So I'd drive up there and, and, and Sandy heard me play and, and, uh, okay. I still didn't think much of it, but playing around at this same time in these other bands in Chicago, I was in Bobby Christian's band. Um, we played in old town and one night, uh, after the gig, somebody said, Hey, did you, did you see Bill Chase was in the audience? I said, no, I did not see, I didn't see him and still didn't think anything of it. But, um, maybe about two or three weeks later, I got called and Bill says, this is Bill Chase. Um, would you be interested in playing with my band? I said, who is this? I thought it was one of my friends playing there. Joke on me. And after his third attempt, I finally believed him. So I started with the band and I was hired. Apparently I didn't find this out till way later, but apparently I was hired as a substitute until, um, one of the other trumpet players, um, could come on the band. He had some other obligations or something. So anyway, I ended up getting fired off of that gig. Uh, Bill didn't seem like he was real pleased with getting rid of me. He said, Hey, he said, the guys want to get a friend on the band. So I said, I get it. You know, I get it. 
So anyway, it started with the band and um, like our second or third gig, I think, we didn't have a lot of gigs, was the uh, trumpet, they called it the Trumpet Symposium in Denver. And some of these stories, by the way, are, are have already, are out there. So might not be new news for some people. But anyway, um, we played and we exchanged, we had choruses, you know, extraordinary 16s, 8s, 4s, you know, all played together on, on Get It On, I think it was. And I was like surrounded with a swarm of trumpet players afterwards in our, I think it was the bad room where we staked our cases and all that. And it was, it was interesting. Um, but that's when, um, that was the first time I met, well, that's when, that's when I gained some notoriety, let's say, and nobody knew who he was and who I was and anything. And I was, you know, in fairness, to the other trumpet players, I was not a very good trumpet player, but I was a very good high note player. So there, I always, when I was, um, studying, um, trumpet at the American Conservatory of Music, um, which I only stayed at for a year, I studied with Charlie Geyer, awesome player, could play anything. It didn't matter. I would test him. And give him something to play. I said, oh, now do it in F sharp minor. And he'd just play it like it was nothing. You know, I, I have no idea how you do stuff like that. He was 26 years old. You know, he was with, with the Chicago Symphony. He had his house paid for, which was impressive to me because I hadn't thought about a house, you know, at my 18 or whatever. And anyway, I remember there was a, another Trump player. I won't mention his name. I've never heard from him since. And he used to always argue with the, the concept that, you know, you, you have to be a well-rounded trumpet player. Okay. I, I don't disagree. I mean, I have to be able to play trumpet in order to exercise my high notes. I get it. But in retrospect, nobody cared where I went to school. Nobody ever asked me to play low notes or they didn't care how well-rounded I was. They would kind of take me under their wing and get me through it, um, because of my high notes. So everybody has a different approach to how to get into the, the business. I don't even know if that would apply anymore. We live in a, a different world today, musically. Um, it, to me, it, to me, it lacks, to me, it lacks emotion. It lacks, everything is sterile. Everything is either pitch corrected or it's got reverb or it's got this or that or the other thing, or they quantize it or, and you got one person in you know, Italy and one person in England and one person in Africa or whatever, they play in little zoom boxes. Um, most of this, I suppose, is due to the, um, pandemic and don't get me started on that. And just the changing world we live in, it's become more technically oriented instead of what, like, where's the heart and soul and things. I mean, when I hear Maynard play, I mean, I sit alongside the guy Chase too. You, you hear these, I mean, they had like fire in their sounds and they, a grain. I mean, it just, you could feel it in your, in your spine, you know, it's, it sends shiver up your spine. It was that intense and that, that full of energy. Um, I don't hear that anymore. I'm sorry. Uh, I, 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 I agree because, uh, in many ways, the music, the, like the, the finished product, is in some ways superior to that era. Of course it, it is. But it, but it lacks the, the spirit and the fire like you're describing. 
Exactly. Yeah. If you, and w- one of the best examples I have of that is on my, on my YouTube channel. It's called Three More Foxes. It's the second time that Maynard's band played that tune. And it was the fourth set. So like 4 a.m. in the morning at Birdland. And you want to hear some fire. You, I mean, this is like the second time through. It's not like they knew what they were doing or anything, but they knew what they were doing, if you know what I mean. And that, I, don't, I don't hear that anymore. I, are there wrong notes? Of course there's wrong notes. <laughs> but, but they're awesome. They're awesome wrong notes. And they, and, they, and they just turn it around and go into good notes. I remember um, on that subject of wrong notes, uh, my friend Don Hahn, who's a very good jazz player, was with me on Maynard's band and on Buddy's band. He studied with Art Farmer for a while. And Art told me, he said, I have three, three um, notes in mind all the time. He said, one, the note I'm going for, two, the note I get, and three, the note I have to play because I missed the one I was going for. <laughs> and it's funny, but it, it's, you can hear that. You can hear that happening in the old days. Now, oh no, we'll do another take. We'll cut and paste here. We'll punch in here. We'll do this, that. You don't hear it anymore. You hear a, a product that, like you say, is technically superior. No question about it. We didn't even have we didn't even have cassettes. I mean, we bought some of the Andy Macintosh, Ernie Garside, and myself bought the first Sony portable cassette recorder in 1974. It was like this big. You know, I, this is a radio, so it's like. I don't know, 14 inches wide and eight inches. It's the wrong notes that bring out the humanity in the music. If something is technically perfect and on a human level, you can't relate to that. But when you see, when you see or hear someone, and especially if you're like a trumpet player and you know how difficult it is and you hear someone and they, they crack a high note, I'm thinking, I know exactly what this guy or this girl is going through. And I appreciate one that they're, that they're doing it and they're taking a risk to do it. But on a human level, it enhances the experience for me. Absolutely. I couldn't agree yeah. more. Yeah. Nothing you could say or do would cause me to agree more. Well, that <laughs> does it for this episode of this. I'm kidding. kidding. I'm kidding. Now, I, I heard you say a few times, like, you get the MF trumpet and you get the MF mouthpiece. And I, oh, and oh. I just have a question based on what you've said, and I want you to clarify this. But what do you say about... The mentality of I have to get this equipment to get this result versus you get the result that you want from what is in your mind and then you get the right equipment to do that. In simplest terms, I believe that we all have a sound in our head that we try to get when we play. And it doesn't matter what equipment we have in, we're going to gravitate toward that sound. What equipment gets that sound the easiest for you? That's what you should be playing. Period. There's no exceptions. And people, they'll spend tens of thousands of trumpet players, are odd group, uh, myself included. They'll spend tens of thousands of dollars on horns, right? And thousands of dollars on mouthpieces. The horn is like 1% of the equation. The mouthpiece is 9% of the equation. And the human factor is 90%. I learned that later, but I mean, I, the gets and I, I dug out of the closet upstairs. I, I made several hundred thousand dollars on that horn. It cost me two hundred and twenty-five dollars in nineteen seventy-seven. I got it in seventy-seven. Yeah. So, yeah, there, and it was the last horn I played in Las Vegas. Yeah, I played all 
essentially all of Las Vegas. I went in with my Martin committee, you know, oh, well, I'm going to play this a great horn. And it was a great horn, but it wasn't the workhorse that the Getson was. And I learned a lot about uh, when I designed the lens horn, I learned a lot about um, design from that Getson. Um, a couple things on the Getson I won't talk about as proprietary. I'm sure other manufacturers have looked at this horn because we sold 160 of these lens horns in one year. And that's kind of unprecedented, um, you, you know, to uh, sell that many horns, I'm told anyway, even a big manufacturer of one model in a year. So, and I still get requests for it, but anyway, that's a whole other story. Um, but I designed a horn um, that was perfect for me, right? Which is probably not the same as for most people, but. It, it won't be perfect for me. It won't be perfect for somebody else. Well, it might, it might be. It might be. But remember, the horn's in the one percentile area. So you can adjust the mouthpiece, which is in the nine percentile area. You can adjust that so that your horn plays the way you want and gets the sound you want. That, I mean, that's the whole thing. The thing that um, was missing from all horns for me is the ability to keep right on going upstairs. Other horns would get my way to a certain extent. I mean, there's a lot of good horns out there. If you like the current fashion, which is a small hole in your mouthpiece playing a setup that's fairly tight. Um, a lot of horns are heavy now, so they're, they're dampened a certain way. They're maybe easier to play, but it makes the sound less to me, less vibrant. So anyway, I just, I designed, uh, just like the valve oil, the, the lens oil that, that box sells for me now. Um, I couldn't find valve oil that would keep this. I won't mention the name of the horn, but it wouldn't keep the third valve from sticking. I tried all different kinds. So I went out in the garage and made my own and it works great. And then I passed it around to a couple of people just for fun, see, because it, it amazed me how, how good it was. And one of these people happened to work, um, in the circles I needed to sell it. I, cause I never, I didn't make it to sell. And he said, what are you going to do with this? I said, I don't know, nothing. Really, I just made it for myself. He said, let me talk to my people. So he did put together a deal. Um, and I, but it's not much of a deal. I get a small royalty from every bottle, you know, none of the stuff is money-making stuff. But the lens, we sold the lens. I always say the lens horn is the best, um, $3,000 trumpet out there. We sold it for $1,300 on the first run of, of, uh, 60 and $1,400 on the second run of a hundred. So 160 total. And uh, who, who, who makes them? I had the, I had the design copied. Um, we made a prototype first, had it copied in China. It was a company in China. So, and I, I, uh, was just lucky to find out a, a trumpet player friend of mine knew somebody who was in that business and knew this particular manufacturer that I was going to call anyway, a lot of, uh, serendipity. So that's what happened there. Pretty soon the, I got the prototype was like, wow, I mean, I'd never played a horn that doesn't stop me above high G and it just kept right on going. I mean, just nothing stops this horn. Nothing. That's all lens horn came about. Now I want to shift gears slightly because I know that you had your last professional gig in 1992. And although it sounds like you still do some playing, but you're not, it's, it's definitely not at the level or the, it's just totally different animal from back in the day. But I want to 
Talk a little bit about your decision to step away from that lifestyle and that career. And it sounds like you got into uh, photography of some sort. Tell us about that transition. And then what made you want to get back into music and trumpet in particular? I'm not back into it. I'm just, I'm an enthusiast now. I But but you, you took a lengthy break and then you, you wanted to get back into it just a little bit. Tell, walk us through that, that process. Okay. My lengthy um, steady cam is uh, a very demanding um, apparatus. You wear it's like somewhere between 65 and 80 pounds. You carry around all day long. You're in pain after the first two or three minutes and then you just stay in pain the rest of the day. I'd lose five or six pounds a day. Of course, I'd gain it all back too, but I mean, you couldn't drink enough fluid. You couldn't eat enough food. It was just hard, hard work, especially the truck shoots where you have to wear the thing for sometimes two or three hours at a time with no break. You have two cable pagers behind you, putting you all over in the universe of whatever show it was. It was brutal. Let's put it that way. Um, but it paid well. And I, the reason I, I chose Steadicam was because I had written some new age music in 1988, I think it was. I broke my leg in 1988 and it, it laid me up. I, I was, I mean, it was a bad tibia plateau fracture from a motorcycle dirt bike accident. And the doctor, you know, was, it took me five months to rehabilitate my knee and the doctor didn't think it was even possible to get the kind of motion I got out of it and, and strength. I went on to do a steady cam career of 15 years with that knee. So anyway, I just finally got a new knee last year, you know, a, a knee replacement after 33 years. Anyway, the steady cam required a lot of training. You didn't work every day. Sometimes you did, but for the most part, you it very entrepreneurial, but you have to stay in shape. Um, because carrying that kind of weight around and being artistic at the same time, um, not easy. But I adapted to it quickly. I had got, I had, um, gotten the steady cam because I wanted to do some shots for this, um, new age music I had written. Just as simple as that. And the only thing I could find that did this shot at the time was a steady cam. So I had already bought one just for fun because I was going to make these videos, new age videos with these shots. And one thing led to another. And then we had the big strike in Las Vegas and they pretty much shut us down. Musicians, uh, there used to be 1200 musicians working full time. It went down to a hundred and the population of the town had increased by, let's see, probably about six or seven times from 1977 to 19 guessing to 1989, I think it was a strike, something like that. So it, it was, it was just, they wiped us out. They, they decided they didn't want to use us and, and they didn't, so they, they got some of our friends in other countries and stuff to record all the music that they used because, because why? Because nobody's loyal to anything, to any cause anymore, you know, until it affects them directly. Oh, well, I can make money, you know, recording this is taking jobs away from the people in Las Vegas. So anyway, that's a whole other story again. So, so that, that, that complaint that we hear from musicians now is not new, just so you're, just so you're aware. Like what what I'm saying is that uh, I hear a lot of musicians today complaining about uh, it, it's just a different job 
uh, market. Uh, things that, things that required Trumpet, for example, in the 70s is no longer required because you can outsource it, you can do this and that. What I was saying is that this is not a new uh, concept. It's it's always changing. Right, and that's about when that started changing. I mean, that's when it made the radical change. It, it wiped us out this time, and I just, I, like I told you earlier, I just would, was sick of trying to scrap together a living with, with a bunch of players that didn't practice anymore. It sounded like a high school band. So I, I said, hell with it. I'm going to become a steady cam operator, which I did. So that's how I got in, into the steady cam. And then in that period of while I was doing steady cam, that's when Dave Winnett sent me the mouthpiece and kind of got me interested again in trumpet. So anyway, is, does that answer your question? Yeah, no, no, it's very good. Now, okay. is the uh, Monet's MF2, is that stand for Maynard Ferguson? Yes. Or, okay. Tell it, because I, 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 I don't know you that well, and I know your name, but I'm just getting to know you alongside people listening in. How much do you playing do you do now, and, and to what extent, and what context? Oh, I play rarely. I post, and you know, I don't know if you've been to my YouTube channel or Facebook, but I post stuff, trumpet tips, trying to pass on Maynard's protocol. I was lucky to be with Maynard. I learned from the master when he was in his prime. I have insights that nobody else has, like, you know, vibrating on the rim, for example. You know, see what his chops actually do instead of people on Trumpet Herald, you know, sitting around with their pipes in their armchairs, you know, scholastically approaching what he did by seeing him externally and speculating. With the rim, I saw exactly what he was doing. So anyway, there's a, that's, that's a, where the, where the thing, um, that I, I call, uh, trumpet voodoo. It's not my term. I heard it from Ko at Stombi. Trumpet voodoo. Trumpet People have voodoo. You know, little gimmicks to sell shit. Trumpet. Basically. We should call it trumpet black magic. <laughs> well, it could be. Um, is that answer that part of the question or no? Yeah, sure. No. Cause okay. I think what, what made me reach out to you is I saw you, uh, I think you, overdubbed with the Marine band doing the stars and stripes. <laughs> <laughs> I like doing stuff like that. Here's why I like stuff like that. Did you hear the Aria and Alenka? And I, I probably heard it years ago, but I haven't heard it recently. I, I don't remember. Well, wasn't that long ago. And, uh, did you hear, um, the sound of silence? Yes. Okay. That's the kind of stuff I like doing because it's unusual. It yeah. gives a new, a new flick. It's raw. It's high energy. It's just crazy. Well, it's and irreverent, that, but it's not disrespectful. You know what I mean? Exactly. I have the greatest respect for the military. My father was in the air. Uh, there's has nothing to do with that. And and those people. I mean, those people who. Well, I know some players in the Marine Band too, and they would. They of course wouldn't take exception. They would probably think it's hilarious. Right. It's unusual. I mean, yeah. it's not every day you hear. You know, that, that was like two passes through that thing. Right. Just boom, boom up, and. and so I says, well, just leave it the way it is. I was going to like pick one of the passes. She said, no, just leave it the way it is. So it's not too often you hear two, two Fs above double C at the end of Stars and Stripes <laughs> in unison. But that's a, that's the kind of stuff. That is the kind of stuff that makes, I remember back in the day, I'd be sitting in a section or something and, and, and the trom trombone said, like on Toshiko's band, I remember one time, they turn around, they're just laughing laughing at, at what I just played, not because they're, it, they thought it was comical, but because it ignited something in them that they normally just sitting there playing their parts, you know, and, 
I remember seeing that at the Hilton too. And trombone players are either my best friends or my worst friends because I play right in their ear. Right. I think what really makes it makes or break something like that, like a like a spoof of the something like the Stars and Stripes, is you can hear the artistry and you can hear this guy really knows what he's doing. Now, if you were to get out there and it's clear that you have no chops at all and you're just making fun of it, that's totally different. But what you're doing is it's it's kind of absurd, but you can hear that it there's real skill and there's real artistry in it. And as a trumpet player, you know this guy's got it put together. Well, thank you. I got to figure it out. It's it's been a process learning how to play that small piece. You know, the, unraveling the final mysteries of what Maynard, how Maynard did what he did. I have two standard questions that I ask uh, at the very beginning, at the very end. So we've already asked how you got started, but now I want to ask: now that you've your career has gone full circle, and you've you've had great moments. And you, you left it in 92 and now, you know, you're, you're still contributing to the community. But what advice would you give to younger players today who may be in shoes similar as yours when you were first starting out getting calls from Bill Chase that you didn't believe was Bill Chase? Right. I, I would say that those opportunities are probably just about non-existent now. Certainly not back-to-back ones than the two most famous trumpet players ever back in the day. Learn to create your own musical scenario is what I would say. Um, something that is unique and unobvious, we call it in the patent world. Um, it's unique and unobvious. I believe that somewhere down the road, music will be more of a healing device uh, than it is entertainment. And I would lean in that direction. If, you, if you're just copying something that was, you're not necessarily creating value. And, and you won't feel fully satisfied, create something that is yours, is what I would say. And, it's, and is it easy? No, it's not easy. Uh, very well said. Uh, Lynn is the author of MF Protocol, A Concise Guide, and it's for sale for 33 bucks. It's a great deal. I mean, when you factor in the, the knowledge and the value that's shared in it, it's, it's uh, think of it as an investment rather than a purchase. And that's a better way to put it. I'm going to have this, I'm going to have a link to it if you go to mfprotocol.trumpetdynamics.com. That's going to take you, just type those in, mfprotocol.trumpetdynamics.com. That's going to take you right to the link to purchase the protocol. But Lynn, it was great to, uh, of course, I've been a, a long time, uh, long distance admirer of yours for years, and I'm glad that we were able to connect and get you on the call. I know that you don't do m- many of these interviews, so I really appreciate you taking some time and sharing a little bit of your journey and some of the knowledge you've gained along the way. So thank you for being on the show. My pleasure. Good to meet you, James. That's a wrap for this episode of Trumpet Dynamics, telling the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. If you or someone you know has a dynamic story you think should be shared on this show, please email us at podcast at jamesnewcombuntrumpet.com and to subscribe to James Newcomb's email newsletter, visit trumpetdynamics.com or jamesnewcombuntrumpet.com. Thank you for listening and we'll be in your earball soon. <laughs>